When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. There are times this behavior seems almost pathological, uh, the, the pattern of falsehoods. He's always in the moment just sort of reacting um, and trying to get reactions. How, how loyal are you to the president? And that's how you're being judged. So if you have a more nuanced position, some will consider you, you know, a, an infidel or a traitor. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. Your one-stop shop for everything Donald Trump. I'm Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent and your host for today's show. By any objective measure, President Trump is deeply unpopular. A recent CNN poll shows him with 38% approval and 56% disapproval. Only 37% says he has the right priorities, while 59% say he hasn't paid enough attention to the country's most important problems. Americans say by only 43% to 55%, that he can bring the change the country needs. When you dig down into more detailed numbers, the picture is even worse. An analysis of a recent Gallup national survey finds Trump eroding among white college-educated voters and whites without a college degree, his core supporters. At this rate, Trump may end the year with approval in the low 30s, a dangerous place for any president, but a catastrophic one for a figure who is still in his first year. But if you read Breitbart, Watch Fox News. The the continued use of the FBI as someone's personal Gestapo, and that's what I'm seeing here. Listen to personalities like Rush Limbaugh. Email referenced high-level information from Russian government against Hillary or some such thing. It never happened. Or catch Boris Epstein on your local news station. And by the way, you know, the narrative that he is now welcome, I'm not so sure that's true. Donald Trump has never said anything bad about Mexico. You wouldn't know this. Indeed, you might believe the opposite, that Trump is an incredibly popular president with a long and unprecedented list of accomplishments. Favorable coverage from partisan outlets isn't new, but the degree to which conservative news has created an alternative universe for Trump supporters is unprecedented. And while Trump's overall approval is sinking, that alternative universe may just keep him afloat among his staunchest supporters. But the president and his followers, it seems, are living in their own private Idaho's. Coming up, I'll be chatting with Ashida Wanebu about conservative media. But stick around after that to hear Trumpcast producer Jason DeLeon talk about the latest news involving Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign advisor. All that after this short break. Our guest today, to talk conservative media and the alternative universe it has built around the president, is Ashida Wanebu, an editorial assistant at Slate and a very keen observer of our present political moment. Welcome to Trumpcast, Ashida. Thanks for having me. Okay, so. I think everyone sort of recognizes this, but it feels actually legitimately crazy that if you tune in to Fox News and some major, if negative event for the president is happening, there is almost no coverage of it. It's sort of, they sort of pretend like it's not there. There's this whole universe really of conservative news and conservative media that has constructed a separate narrative of the Trump presidency that a lot of people buy into and accept, I think is a little unprecedented for 
American politics and, and raises all kinds of complications about how one engages in politics and political dialogue. So my, my first question um, for you, and I, I just want to get your thoughts here, is where, where do you think this, in, this leads? Um, let's say the president's popularity like suffers a, an abrupt collapse, even below where it is now. Do you think that despite that, there'll still be this core of Americans who don't just not perceive that, but actively think that there's some grand conspiracy kind of happening against them? Because that's the narrative you're seeing in, in conservative media. Well, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that to me, it's not that crazy anymore. I'm, I mean, you know, it is jarring to see something happening in the White House being reported on by the New York Times, Washington Post, etc. And you turn on Fox News to hear about it. And they're off reporting on Tim Allen's show on ABC and how canceling it is like a, a tyrannical whatever. Right, right. Cramming its um, humanity. Right, exactly. But that's the way conservative media has been now for what, like a quarter century. And I think it all precedes Trump. And, and Trump's presidency is, I think, the fullest expression of this sort of alternate reality that they've constructed. But it's been around for a long time now. And I think it's, it's a feature of our natural political geography at this point. Uh, so it's not as jarring to me. And maybe that's just a function of me, you know, writing this column where I, where I sort of read in this universe all day. And maybe I've just sort of gotten used to it. But I also feel like, you know, the Bush administration was the exact same way. You'd have Fox News downplaying reports that things were not going well in Iraq or, you know, turning to other kinds of controversies when, when Katrina was happening. You know, this, is, this has been going on for a while. Um, and, you know, as somebody who reads this stuff every day and watches these clips every day, it's very hard for me to sort of get a sense of what it takes to fix that. Yeah. Like how you actually how you how you actually change things substantively it seems i mean it, it seems to throw a kink in into the entire idea of democratic deliberation which kind of depends on the presence of at least some kind of objective reality to which everyone can agree mm -hmm. um, one of the most striking things to me after the election was uh, the polls of people's economic confidence or feelings about the economy and in the wake of trump's election you had an entire segment overall confidence in the economy like sharply went up. And it was largely because people who had expressed low confidence about the economy under President Obama now express high confidence on, on, on the economy right. under the prospect of President Trump. Right. And that sort of raises this question, right, of let's say economic conditions are in fact deteriorating and you're trying to pitch a message to a group of people to say that you should support me and my party because we would do a better job of stewarding the economy, increasing your wages, but if if lo if their local economic conditions aren't terrible, they might say to themselves, "No, I think the economy is doing great because right. look look who's in charge." And that, how do you you can't how do you deal with that? That that almost makes politics impossible. Yeah, I don't know, Jamel. <laughs> I, I really don't. But I mean, I think it's true. I think I think one of the most clarifying moments of the early administration was I think one of the early press conferences when Sean Spicer was asked by a reporter, you know, Trump had said all this stuff during the campaign about how the numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on the economy improving had been bunk. But now you have, or you had, I think, in, in late January, early February, some numbers showing a continued improvement. And so the question to Spicer was, does President Trump still think that the Bureau of Labor Statistics is full of crap? And Spicer's response was, no, he thinks, he thinks the numbers are real now. And presumably, Trump supporters sort of roll with that. Now, I don't really know whether if there is Things are improving, obviously, but they're improving more sluggishly in some places than others, right. and which is one of the reasons why Trump got the, some disaffected uh, voters. 
But if, if things continue to go sort of sluggishly in those areas, I, I really don't know if that actually impacts Trump negatively. One thing, one thing I do want to say about this moment is that these sorts of problems of not being able to reach certain people with the facts are not really new. Yeah. Um, and they're not really con- exclusive to conservative politics, or ideological politics. I mean, I've been reading uh, a book called Public Opinion by Walter Lippmann. Uh, which is Great book. In, in, a wonderful book. It was written in the, I believe, in the early 20s. Um, and it was sort of his assessment of democracy going back to the founding um, and how it works out in America. And he, he points out that, you know, it, it, <laughs> democracy is really hard. And one of the reasons <laughs> why it's really hard is that even if you are an engaged citizen who tries their best uh, to understand politics and policy and, and you know, if you do spend portions of every single day trying to read the news and, and sort of figure things out in order to make informed decisions, no individual person can really do that all the time or do that in an efficient way or sort of put together, you know, a complete picture of an economic situation or a foreign policy situation on their own. They should sort of have to rely on certain ideas about how people are, on stereotypes. He's one of the first people to popularize the idea of stereotypes but on certain heuristics that allow people to understand the world. And this is one of the major sort of challenges for democracy. And I think that what's new about this moment is that you have institutions like Fox News that sort of capitalize on that inherent weakness or that inherent sort of challenge. One interesting, alarming, can't think of the right adjective thing, right adjective right now, is that thing about right now is that the Republican Party because of conservative media, the Republican Party is not always responsive to the narratives coming out of conservative media. That it 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 is an arbiter for media and not really the other way around. Right. Um, and that creates a sort of weird, perverse incentives for actual Republican politicians. And I think you kind of see this in how you know your Jeff Flakes or your Ben Sasses or whomever are obviously caught in this position where they they recognize that like their voters believe something that's not true. But also stating that would incur the wrath of, you know, yeah, this major part this whole of the infrastructure of the right? media. Yeah. Um, so I just that wasn't even a question. I'm just like curious what you think. Uh, I mean, one of the things I think about that is everything has sort of been nationalized now. Uh, I'm not that old, <laughs> but I <laughs> neither, imagine. Neither am I. Uh, I, I imagine that you know, if you were a congressman 20, 30 years ago, what's your constituents thought about your performance related directly to? what they could see on the ground in their particular district as consequences of your action as a legislator. Now we literally have a media infrastructure that sort of makes, I guess it sort of obviates local issues or supplants them. Um, And so people are sort of wrapped up in these broader national debates about sort of broad ideology, and they're not as tethered to conditions on the ground. And I think that does have an impact on our politics, especially given that I think one of the big moves uh, that's happened recently has been this Sinclair thing, uh, where you have a right-wing company buying up all of these local news stations. I think they're going to have, if this deal goes through, that the FCC has sort of greased the wheels of, they're going to have access to 72% or so of American households. And, you know, this is an organization that, as, as people have pointed out, um, has segments where they sort of have a commentator, Boris Epstein, basically deliver Fox News-esque right. uh, rhapsodies about this or that issue on a, at a local news station. And I don't really have a sense of how that bleeds into the rest of the reporting on things that are happening in communities, but I, I assume it has an impact there as well. So even the institutions that 
may have tethered politicians to uh, a commitment to basically just sort of focusing on local politics rather than these national narratives. Institutions like local TV stations, local newspapers also being bought up by conservative right. uh, rich people. Uh, even those institutions are being nationalized and sort of imported into this broader discourse. And I think that does have, have real consequences. Um, I sort of wonder, and this is a completely inchoate thought, but I, I think like a, quite a few observers of American politics and life over the last half century, I, I think that the one of the major moments, one of the major causes of a lot of problems right now is just the kind of unions and the associated yeah. civil society with unions. Yeah. And I, I sort of wonder how much of this is a part of that too, right? That like unions and again, the whole civil society associated with them, um, the broader decline of civic associations and civic organizations, all those things tethered people to local communities and worked in concert with right. newspapers and, and, and so on and so forth that kind of like give people a better context or, or a more local focused context for understand politics in their lives. And I, I do wonder how much the collapse of unions has, has been part, has, has helped create the vacuum here as well. Like another way in which it's diminished the ability of democracy to happen in a way that isn't just like, you know, rival ideological camps trying to crush each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's true. I mean, you know, this is the sort of bowling alone yeah. kind of thesis. Which it, I hate citing bowling alone because it's like very cliche, but it's also yeah. sort of just well, like a... It, it seems pretty, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this, this is that thesis that, you know, as community or not just unions, but as sort of broad civic organizations as well, declined in popularity and membership, you have fewer people in social situations where they're engaging with people in their immediate community. And presumably those organizations would bring together people in the same community with different partisan beliefs, uh, different cultural values, and they could, you know, talk to and learn from each other is, is how the cliche goes. But now that those organizations are gone, people are watching Fox News, they're, they're sort of isolated and they can sort themselves into, like I said, this sort of broad ideological community that isn't tethered to where they live or their immediate neighborhood or community or whatever. And so, you know, I, I think that there's an extent to which, obviously, unions were very, very important in organizing uh, for a certain kind of politics and you know, obviously had a certain ideological bent. But even, even with people in unions, there were certain cultural changes that I think mitigated some of those cohesion effects. Yeah. People sort of started leaving mentally even before, you know, they'd left unions or even before unions had had gone the way of the dodo. I mean, they're not completely gone, but uh, I mean, membership is is not <laughs> is is not uh, great right now. Right. So a conversation like this kind of begs for a discussion of solutions, but I'm not sure that either of us has um, mm -hmm. solutions. But if we're if we're thinking, there are sort of concrete problems here, like consolidation of media, yeah. um, uh, collapse of of sort of independent local media that actually I think do or may have uh, policy solutions. And I'm curious to see if you have any thoughts on that. Like my first thought here, right, is that like ideally you would have an FCC who would say Sinclair cannot own that many local broadcast stations. Mm -hmm. that, like that is not allowed. It is inimical to how we think the media market should work. Or um, you can imagine a proposal for sort of federally subsidized local media, like a ways for right. – papers to sustain themselves um, in kind of the, you know, BBC, CBC model. So mm -hmm. just curious what you, know, what you think. Well, I mean, I think absolutely the FCC should be involved in, in ensuring that, you know, these big conglomerates aren't forming, uh, especially if they are basically advancing a certain ideology. 
and, and achieving monopolies or achieving you know, vast market share to advance particular ideology. But there's a sense in which this whole conversation is kind of antiquated. I mean, yeah, sure, there should be the breaking up of, of media monopolies. But I mean, what is the FCC going to do about YouTube? And that's really where, that's, that's where there's been a lot of recent growth that interests me. On YouTube, you have this phenomenon now where there are tons and tons of very young people creating sort of media empires of their own, or these sort of media fiefdoms. They get thousands and thousands of viewers. And it's, it's mostly environment uh, on YouTube and, and other video sites. It's, it's dominated by conservatives. And they're sort of creating an alternative media infrastructure, even apart from Fox News and this sort of traditional conservative behemoths that we all know and love. And I don't know what kind of impact that has, but they are attracting a large following. They're attracting a following beyond the sort of retiree in a nursing home a demographic you imagine to be the primary Fox <laughs> News viewer. But like, you know, young people. And this is something the alt-right is doing too. They're building media networks, uh, even sort of pseudo-channels on YouTube. You have someone like Ben Shapiro, who's been a tremendous success in conservative media and somebody who I, in my column, end up quoting over and over again because he seems to have the most read articles of the day very often. He has right now the number two podcast in the country, not just in politics and media, but overall. Number one is like an Oprah Winfrey show. So there, you know, the, the media, even if you did have efforts to really crack down on, on something like Sinclair expanding and, and controlling or, or having access to so many households, there's a sense in which the cat has sort of been out, let out of the bag here. The traditional mediums, television, radio, talk radio is still a big thing, but you know, they're, they're not really what's going to be setting the conversation. Obviously, Trump is very invested in what gets disseminated online. He has a new Trump uh, TV right. operation that's being run by his daughter-in-law. Uh, I think they just sort of post directly to Facebook, and that reaches, you know, presumably millions of people. And so, you know, it's 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 there's a sense in which TV is almost, and Fox News are kind of the old story, and there's a sort of brave new world of, of other kinds of ways in which this sort of ideological enclosure is being expanded. I have been speaking to Osito Wanevu, an editorial assistant at Slate, and just a very, very sharp thinker. Thank you for joining us, Osita. Thank you. This show is over. But before we go, I'm sure you're following us on Twitter, right? If not, then you should. We're at Real Trumpcast. That's at Real Trumpcast. It's the best way to keep up with what we're doing, including our upcoming live show in Austin, Texas, for the Texas Tribune Festival. You can get more info on that at slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon with help from AC Valdez. I'm Jamel Bowie, and thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>